could stand for the reading of God's word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's Word. The music of the Messiah has an interesting history. George Frederick Handel had his own opera company, and he was trying to make a living through music, but the opera company that he founded and was running was failing, and he had to close it down. He was basically on the verge of bankruptcy. And Handel, naturally enough, was uh, discouraged by this, uh, despondent, even depressed, a friend of his sent him a list of Bible verses. It was an expansive list. Uh, this friend had attempted to summarize the teaching of Scripture through the lens of picking passages from Haggai and Isaiah and other prophets and then in the Gospels and up until the fulfillment of all the promises in the Old Testament in, in the New Testament, from the birth of Christ to his death and resurrection. Actually, Handel's Messiah was originally designed not to be done at Christmas, to be done at Easter, because it, it finishes with the death and resurrection of, of Christ. And, and this friend of, of Handel's sent him this extensive, very carefully put together selection of um, the teaching of the Bible to, to make the case that actually the, the Bible was not irrelevant, but relevant. That the Bible was not out of date, but had a contemporary message. That the Bible was not a, a jumble of different best thoughts for the day, but actually had a, a coherent proclamation that was centered around the Messiah. And he uh, sent to Handel this selection of, of texts with the hope that Handel, obviously as a reasonably well-known musician, even though he was facing bankruptcy, with the hope that Handel would put these uh, Bible passages to some kind of musical opera of one sort or another. 
Handel's reply was he was interested in doing so, but this is a very extensive project. It would take him at least a year, and I suppose we can imagine that Handel had more pressing things on his mind than putting a whole bunch of Bible verses to music. He had to feed his family. He had to figure out his verging on bankruptcy set of issues. At the same time, though, Handel was also approached by a charity, a 501c3 in our terms, um, to, to ask him to uh, um, put together a, a simple little piece of music for um, an event. It was a fundraiser. And the organizers of this charity were looking around for a composer who could create something that would be idiomatic, unique, um, special for them. And so they approached Handel, and they approached him going to pay him to do this. Now, suddenly, Handel had motivation from two sources. Now, the myth is that Handel um, created this piece of music in a sudden sort of inspiration, and a lot of revisionist historians have said, no, 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 that's not true. And so I decided this week that I would get back into it and figure out whether indeed Handel did or did not write the Messiah extremely fast in a burst of spiritual inspiration. And what I've discovered is that the myth seems not to have been a myth, but actually to be fact. Handel... Uh, wrote the Messiah, which turns out to be 260 pages of music, which I hear is quite a lot, Um, never having written any music myself, and some might say never having sung any music either. Um, 260 pages of music in 24 days. which is pretty impressive. And actually, he said about the Hallelujah Chorus, which is one of the most famous bits of uh, Handel's Messiah, and um, uh, is particularly well-known, and is the moment when actually when it was first performed, the King of England at the time stood up, and so there's a tradition that whenever it's performed, everyone stands for the Hallelujah Chorus. Um, He said when he was writing the Hallelujah Chorus this, I did think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself. I wonder whether you are in a similar sort of situation that Handel was in. Perhaps you are a musician and you feel like you're down on your luck. Or maybe you're a businessman and... Your career is not going exactly how, uh, how you wished it was going. Christmas is a funny season. We're all meant to be joyful, and we put up our, our red banners, and we light our candles. But at the same time, at Advent, we recollect who's not here this year that was here last year. And there's something about the pressure of being really, really joyful at Christmas that makes some of us particularly depressed. It's like I've got to be happy, and I just don't feel that way. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it is financial like it was for Handel. Maybe it's some other circumstance in your life. The text we're looking at this morning is the first in a set of um, passages that Handel set to music. And it um, 
begins after quite a long musical prelude. And the prelude sort of moves in and out and up and down and is somewhat somber, almost reflecting this, this mood that Handel was in at the time. And brilliantly, actually, also reflecting, in many ways, the mood of the prophet Isaiah up until this moment. You see, in Isaiah chapter 39, Hezekiah, the king at the time, who, unlike his forebear Ahaz, had trusted in God, which is the great message of Isaiah. Isaiah as a book is basically calling the leaders of God's people not to put their trust in um, Assyria or Babylon, the local superpowers, not to put their trust in that, but to put their trust in the, the true superpower, God. You need do nothing but be still and trust Well, Ahaz had infamously not done that, but Hezekiah had for a while. And then he had made some of the same mistake with Babylon that his forebear had made with Assyria and showed that the representatives of Babylon, all his treasures. And then when he was confronted by Isaiah about what he had done, Isaiah um, told him that this was not the way to trust in God. Hezekiah's response was simply that on hearing that because of the way that God's people and the kings of God's people had behaved for a long time, not trusting in God, but putting their trust in idols of one kind or another, because of that, God's people will go into exile and it will be terrible and traumatic. And Hezekiah's response was, at least it will not happen in my lifetime. Which is hardly what you want to hear from the king, the, the, the leader of God's people who should be doing everything he can to protect and look after and encourage and, 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 and boost and support and resource the people that he is responsible for. No, well, at least it won't happen in my lifetime. I'll be okay. And so you get this long musical interlude that reflects this extraordinary immaturity of Hezekiah at best. And then you get the soloist singing out, comfort, comfort, my people. The kings have failed God's people. And God himself declares, I will give you comfort, for you are my people. Comfort, comfort my people. It really is a be- it's beautiful in, hand- in handle, and it's-, it's stunning in the book of Isaiah. Suddenly, Isaiah, the prophet, begins to preach to God's people comfort. There will come a day when God's people will come back from exile, when they will be no longer under the condemnation of, of, of discipline for the failures of God's people and worshipping idols. They will come back, and there's a further horizon, Isaiah is prophesying, when indeed not only will they return physically to Jerusalem and to Judah, not only will there be a physical return in terms of that kind of exile, there will be a spiritual return to God, when the Lord himself will come, when the Lord himself will redeem his people, when the Messiah will enter the temple 
And as I suppose many of us know, these words here then were used of John the Baptist in his preaching of Christ. In other words, the voice of Isaiah is now the voice of John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord, the Lord being the Messiah, Jesus. Comfort. And the text we're looking at this morning, verses 1 to 5, is simply structured around two elements of that message. The first is to get the message, and the second is to, to give the message. The first couple of verses are about getting the message. There's this voice, which is the voice of God, comfort, comfort my people. And the, the message is one that we are to receive, to, to get. And the, the prophet speaking God's word then is to speak this message of comfort tenderly, gently. I love listening, listening to preachers and I hope you like listening to preachers as well, at least one or two of them, but... Um, Preachers have different ways of, of speaking and different ways of... I sometimes find, and maybe this is just me, but I sometimes find it hard when I'm listening to a preacher and all they do is shout. It's like, you know, I'm not deaf yet. And maybe I will be by the time you've completed. And, and what strikes me as strange is they sometimes shout even when they're speaking a message of grace. Our tone is to reflect the message. We're to speak tenderly this message of comfort and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, it's over. The exile is done. As Christ said on the cross, cross, it is finished. That the Lord, the perfect Son, lived the perfect life so that all the sins and failures that we have all embodied in our lives and that Israel embodied in its life is now pardoned, is now removed is now paid for. That even the, the sin of idolatry, and of course there's physical idols, that we, but then there are the idols of money and success and beauty and sex and all these different spiritual idols that we take into our mind and heart and put in place of the worship of God himself and therefore is an offense to God himself, all that because of Christ on the cross declaring it is finished or it is done, it has been paid for, is now over. And therefore, comfort. Now do you, have you got that message? I find as a preacher that it is, there's a, a, 
there are two kinds of people. For the the non-Christian, someone who isn't yet a Christian, it is very hard to communicate sufficiently and with an appropriate degree of seriousness the true nature of the depravity and disgusting, offensive nature of sin. Sin is a snigger word, a joke word, a It is passingly hard to communicate the the holiness of God and the offense of the sinner to someone who is not yet a Christian. Well, I'm better than my neighbor. And by the way, I spoke to your neighbor and he thinks he's better than you. I haven't killed someone. I, 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 I live a reasonably clean life. But it isn't really until you enter, as Isaiah did in chapter 6, the holy place and see that the Lord is holy, holy, holy. You realize that you are undone, that you are a person of unclean lips and you live among a people of unclean lips. This is passingly hard to communicate. But there is another side as well. It is very, very hard to communicate to to God's people, to those who know and love Jesus, that actually... Your sins are paid for. That you are free. That you have been pardoned. Of course, once we get that, there are all sorts of implications. We don't need to pretend to be better than we are because we're not very good, but we are entirely forgiven. If we, if we got that message as a people, as a city in Wheaton, it would transform the way we welcome each other because we'd be more open-hearted because we would know that we're forgiven and we know that we're, we're not perfect, but we are forgiven and therefore we can just be more open. Have you, have you got that message? Your sins are pardoned if you're in Christ. Not partially pardoned, not semi-pardoned, not pardoned as long as you keep on being whatever it is that you think your parents wanted you to be but they are done. Why? Because the Lord himself says, comfort. Welcome back. Welcome home. There's no standard of perfection that you need to meet in order to walk through those doors. The only standard you need to meet is to be a human being, which I think with confidence, I can declare that 100% of you are. Why? Because the standard has been with 100% infinite majesty and total power and glory met in Christ. Have you got that message? If you have, you're going to want to give it away too. And this is the second part of the 
of the passage from verse 3. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain made low. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. And what I want you to notice here is the shift in voice-speaking mode. So now suddenly there's a, a voice of one calling. This is a, a human voice, but a human voice that is speaking what the mouth of the Lord has spoken, verse 5. And so this section of the Bible is fulfilled, as the New Testament shows us, in John the Baptist, a human speaking the comfort message that Isaiah long ago prophesied. He is the voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. That is, it's going to be a smooth. It's going to be easy. The barrier of having to go down or the barrier of having to go way up mountain and hill, they'll be brought low. The barrier of rough ground that you can't walk through is going to be made level. The rugged places, a plain, it's going to be all flattened. It's going to be just like the Midwest. Like those uh, prairies where you can see this big horizon for the purpose that the glory of the Lord can be seen. In other words, everything else, get out of the way, get low, get to the same flat, smooth, everything can be seen. Why? So that Jesus can be seen. That's the, the voice calling out or crying out, giving that message, which is the message that the mouth of the Lord has, has spoken. The more we get that message, the more we're going to want to give that message as well. Quite like the story of a... Um, rich man who had a large garden, uh, which, let me translate, is a yard with grass in it and flowers. He had this large garden and uh, like uh, he was too busy to have enough time to tend to the garden, so he, he hired a gardener. This gardener began to read some slightly dubious religious books and was becoming more and more religious. You know what they say about religiosity, the more miserable you are, the more religious you are, and the more religious you are, the more miserable you are. He was meeting, reading more and more religious books and he came to the notion that he had achieved sinless perfection, which struck uh, the uh, the owner of the garden as ironic because at the same time this gardener was doing a worse and worse job with taking out the weeds in his garden. Eventually, uh, the gardener moved on and the rich man said to his friends, next time I'm going to hire a sinner. Comfort. Comfort. God's people. 
Let's pray together. As we come now to this, your table, Lord, we pray that we would receive that comfort and be empowered by you to give that comfort to others. Preachers to people, fathers to sons, mothers to daughters, friends to friends. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.